0: Uh, 21, and uh, this is a series about faith, about Abraham, who began his story back in Genesis 12 in a broken world, where Babel had just fallen, and Cain had killed Abel, and there was hopelessness, just hopelessness in the world. And God calls out to this man who hadn't done anything yet, he hadn't had any accolades, anything on his resume, he didn't really even have a name, he was from nowhere, he was from Ur, and he was a a moon-worshipping pagan guy. And called Abraham and gave a promise to Abraham and never let him go. This is the way that God is working in Abraham's life. And so the narrative of Genesis helps us see the transformation of a person. The transformation of the world, yes, to bring blessing to the world through a covenant family, but starting with just a person. A person that would be captured by the covenant love of God. And over time, not only would the world be changed around him, but even more importantly, faith would grow up in him. And the Bible would say he would go from somebody that was anonymous to God to be somebody that was known by God and somebody that was friends with God, who have a great name and a great nation. This is who Abraham is. And so, um, I don't know about you guys, but one of my favorite things about the fall is back-to-school shopping. I, uh, it's almost like therapeutic when I go into Staples. I feel like my blood pressure just goes down because I feel like things are about to get organized. I am a big fan of the G2 black ball pen. I don't even loan them out. If you ask me for them, I'm like, I love you and the Lord, but good luck to you. He'll provide it in another way. I'm, this is my G2 ball pen. Thank you. I love the smell of my 90s pencil sharpener. We had pencil sharpeners back then before they gave Chromebooks. So I just had an electric pencil sharpener that I would shave with, shave the little pencil with and the little erasers that you'd get. Then I grew up. In 2007, I became a teacher. They give you $275 every year to buy whatever you want at Staples. And I would spend all of it. I would get electric... I would get all black Expo markers. Don't mess around with the red ones and the green ones. Those are for the, the plebeians. You don't need those. You want just the black ones that are just... Psh, they just smell right, and they're just juicy on the board. And just Was that weird to say that? They're not... They're just crisp. They're tight. They catch the swoops and the cursives. They're just so good. And I'd get electric tape and my, my lesson plans would be just right. And I'd get my Google Doc out and my lesson plan, unit plan, would all be set for the rest of the year. All of my things were in, a, in their place and everything had its place and everything would be in its place. And when the kids would come, that's when the chaos would, in, would ensue. We like to organize stuff. We like to go to Staples and press the easy button because life's not always easy. And... Life's not always organized. Life's super messy. Life's like super messy and tangled and mingled. I know um, divorced dads who struggle with living where they are but can't move because they would lose their kids. So what do you do? Like your blessing is, is mingled in your curse sometimes, right? I know parents who just want to lead their kids and love their kids in the Lord and teaching them in the way that they should go so they will follow is a proverb, not a promise, you know? And so maybe you're a parent and you let your kid date because they need to make choices and they can't live in the bubble, but maybe they don't date the person that you think they should date. Maybe they date somebody that might be dangerous to them and then you struggle with that, the tension between the freedom of allowing the kid to choose and, and getting involved and being a helicopter parent. Like, life's not always easy. It's not always... Always black and white. You would like things to be good or bad, or or evil, or 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 great, uh, dark or light. But sometimes, you know, they're mingled or somewhere in between. And so this is where um, we're going to find our story this morning. Uh, Abraham doesn't just have a checkered past; he has a mingled past. Uh, He was promised uh, in Genesis 15 that he was going to have an heir, Uh, and they didn't have a lot of biology back then, and so. Uh, they didn't really know you know, where babies come from, other than I guess the Lord provides them. And so halfway along the line, they got uh, impatient. This is Abraham and Sarah in waiting for the heir, waiting for Isaac to bo- get born. And so Sarah gives Hagar, their slave woman, to Abraham. And they take matters into their own, ha- own hands to have a baby because they were trying to help God out. They were done waiting for God to deliver the promised child. But um, not soon after that, tension ensues between the two mothers and Uh, we realized that this was not the promised child, that this is not the way that God was going to make a great name and great nation and great descendants and great land for Abraham. And so Hagar is born, but the promised child is still um, waiting to be delivered. And so in Genesis chapter 17, God tells him it's not him. This is not, this is not the promised child. Isaac is not, uh, or Ishmael is not the one that God had promised. And so, uh, so here we are, and we have this, this, this home represented in this tent that's going to be talked about in this chapter of two different, uh, two different families where, where Ishmael um, is someone that Abraham loves. It says in the Bible that Sarah despised Ishmael because Ishmael reminded Sarah of how she was not a blessing and not fertile and not able to produce the child that God had promised for Abraham. In that culture, that was a very big deal. And so here's Ishmael, who is Abraham's son. And although Sarah despises Ishmael, God, or Abraham loves Ishmael and treats him as a son. He asked God in Genesis 17, could you bless Ishmael as the promised son? And that's when God tells him, no, there's gonna be one that comes from Sarah. And that's when, God, when Abraham were to laugh at such a thing. But here's Ishmael, which, which Sarah despises and God loves. They both live in the same home and, uh, and there is a tension around this inheritance of what's about to come out of this. So here's the scene. It starts in 21, we're going to start in verse 8 because we went through 1-7 through on the message on Sarah if you want to go back and listen to. But it says this, it says the child grew and was weaned, that means Isaac was about uh, between 2 and 4. So here's the the setting, Uh, Genesis 21, 1-7 is the birth of Isaac. Uh, Isaac's name means laughter and it says in the scriptures that although Sarah used to laugh in disdain and And in cynicism about the birth of Isaac, she laughs at the beginning of Genesis 21 because she sees the wonder now of God delivering this promise at the age of 90, a barren woman at that, being able to have a baby. So there's this great celebration in the tent. And in Genesis 21, 8, it says the child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham had a great feast. But here it is. Our lives are not organized and separate and easy and neat and tidy. They're often mingled Uh, Sweet with the sour, um, heartache with happiness, uh, failure with faithfulness, all mingled into the same sometimes days and moments and years and relationships. So verse 9, there's this great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar had, the Egyptian, the one who Hagar born to Abraham, was mocking. You see that? The laughter there is two different kinds of laughter that are happening all at the same time. Verse 10, and she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman. And her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. So there's two different kinds of laughter that's going on. On the one hand, you have uh, the couple, Abraham and Sarah, who have waited to 90. She was already barren just by genetics in the first place. Not only that, to add insult uh, insult to injury, she's too old to have the baby. So she has the baby, and there's this laughter, this pure joy and wonder. And Sarah says, oh, that others would join me in my laughter. To realize that God is big and I'm small. To realize that God is strong when I'm weak. To realize that God is faithful when I'm faithless. And that God, God, God has given me my laughter. Oh, that many, many would taste of this kind of laughter. But even in the moment of the weaning and the celebration, there's a chirping, there's a chatter. There's a mocking from the other side. So there's a division. And we can sense the kind of personality conflict and the kind of jealousy that would take place in a family where the firstborn son uh, would maybe lose the inheritance of the second-born favoritist son, where, uh, where the barren woman would be jealous of the slave woman for being able to have babies. We can sense the personal family, you know, Dr. Phil type of tension that's going on in this family, the dysfunction that's going on. But even more than that, the Bible says there's not just a, a birth order issue that's going on, there's a spiritual conflict that's at hand. This is in Galatians uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 29. This is what Paul says about this scene. He says in four twenty nine. That, that with Hagar and Ishmael, he says, at this time, the passages we just read, it says, the son that was born according to the flesh, the son that was born according to the flesh began to persecute the son that was born according to the spirit. I'll read that one more time. Uh, Paul says, uh, painting an imagery, talking about, um, uh, in his letter to the Galatians in the New Testament, talking about New Testament theology and, and, and gospel and so forth, he makes this comment about the passage we just read, he says, What was happening in that tent when there was two brands of laughter happening was <clears throat> that at that time there was one son that was born according to the flesh and one son that was born according to the Spirit. And the son of the flesh began to persecute the son of the Spirit. And so uh, there's, a, there's a famous passage. You guys ever heard of Tim Tebow before? You guys know Tim Tebow? What's Tim Tebow's favorite verse? John 3.16? John 3.16? Right? That he, he that loves, so loved the world sent his own gotten son that whoever would be, believe in him might not uh, die but have eternal life. Before, this, is, this is a famous passage, John three sixteen. It's a conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And basically, let me just summarize it in the crib notes of this. Jesus says in the midnight hour to Nicodemus, he says, you know what? Giraffes will always have giraffes. You never have giraffes that have elephants. That never happens. Okay? Elephants will always have elephants and lions will always have lions. And what he says to Nicodemus is that the flesh, the flesh... What you and me are made of, our human dust likeness, that God breathed in his spirit and made us out of dust and formed us to be who we are in Genesis 2. Flesh can only give birth to flesh, but spirit can what? Only give birth to spirit. So if you, Nicodemus, are to live, you need to be born of the spirit. You can't just be born of your mother. You have to be born of the spirit. It's an important Uh, impasse that he puts before this great teacher because Nicodemus is coming to the middle of the night to go find a teacher but Jesus is telling him you don't need a teacher you need a savior you don't need to to organize and reorganize your flesh and your life and make principle and wisdom around what you're doing you need a rebirth you need to be born again in the spirit and so this is what um this this is what uh, Paul is saying in Galatians four twenty nine is that there's more at play in this passage than just Dr Phil dysfunction and uh, and baby mama drama for lack of a better words uh, this is more than just human family tree problems this is a spiritual problem Genesis three from the very beginning of the curse says that throughout time there will be there will be an ongoing enmity between the two lines of humanity that of the seed of the woman and that of the seed of the serpent. No, it's not saying that we're just going to get in fights with cobras because uh, that would be super scary and I hate snakes. Uh, I would be terrified. My, and one of the elders, Scott Hafer, was telling me about the rattlesnake roundup in Texas and we Googled it and there's just snakes all over the floor and just people and beauty pageant people walking around and I just thought, that is, the, that is awful. I think that's just terrible. We should never do that. So it's not... But it's not talking about man versus snake, right? It's talking about the seed of the woman, the one in which the line forward of promise, Jesus is going to bring a line forward in which the culmination of this will be um, someone not born of the flesh. Mary gave birth to Jesus. Jesus was not born of human seed. From Abraham all the way through David all the way down through Mary uh, uh, we were passing along a human seed but it stops there and and, and the angel has to encounter Mary before she is married because Jesus cannot be born of the flesh he must be born of the spirit and so must we. So there is a line that's being drawn and what Paul is getting at here is that from day one from day one the, the, the seed of the serpent begins to infect humanity and Cain Cain has enmity with his brother Abel. That's not just because the offering was right. It's because because he was not born of the Spirit. He was not born of the promise. He was not the line. And so there's an enmity there. When Jacob and Esau are born, the scriptures say in Romans 9 that Jacob was loved, but Esau was hated. and, And they were wrestling on their way out of the womb. This is the enmity that's taking place. This is not just about a family disorder or problem. This is about the Spirit and the flesh warring, warring inside of us, around us. And so I just want us to even just take a minute here on this passage before we move on to reflect. Verse, uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians verse. Can I get the reference there? Uh, in, in verse 18, chapter 1, yeah, verse 18. This is this is what's what what this passage means for us. For the message of the cross, the gospel, to be born of the, the born of the spirit? Nicodemus says, Am I supposed to just crawl up in my mother's womb again and just pop out? Like what? What, what does that even mean? It says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. There are children that can understand the gospel. There are special needs people that can understand the gospel. There are illiterate people that can understand the gospel and PhD people that cannot. This is not a matter of flesh. This is not a matter of intelligence. It's not a matter of doctorates or a matter of, 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 of understanding some type of a flow chart. This is the power of God to be born of the Spirit, to be treated like Jesus because he was treated like this to come alive. And so, that, so it is. We have enmity and maybe you feel this. I think this is the application point, at least in Galatians. And we'll get back to Genesis in a moment. But this is, this is what Paul is talking about. Is we are always, are we aware? Are we aware? Are we aware that when we see the world in the way that it works and, and things that, that, that function the way that makes sense to us, are we aware that we are always, always, uh, we are always magnetized towards that in our, in our flesh when we see things that work, when we think, see things that are appealing? when we see things that satisfy um, our questions, when we see things that orient themselves around our personal kingdoms, are we aware that the works of the spirit are always uh, at enmity with the works of the flesh and the works of our flesh. It's like, I remember Charlie Boyd at Fellowship Greenville used to talk about, you'd have magnets. We have magnets in our flesh that are continually drawn. Man, there is just a picture of like a dream house out there and it has a dream family and a dream husband and it has this, this dream to it. And it has nothing to do. It didn't come to us because of, uh, of, it didn't come to us because of the gospel, it didn't come to us through prayer. It just comes because it has an ease to it. It has a, it has a, a button that feels like organization. It, it has a, a draw to us that appeals to our nature. and this is enmity to the flesh. Are we aware of the spirit and the flesh that is uh, warring inside of us? Similarly, around us, there, there is an enmity that goes on where, I don't know if, if you've seen this before, but somebody that is, um, I mean, Jesus is the kindest guy that ever walked the earth. And he says, if they've hated me, they'd hate you too. And there's a, a level of walking and following Jesus in this, in this life and in this age where uh, it, will, it will feel like a kind of uh, smugness or it'll, it'll seem like it has this air of haughtiness to it, even though it's, it's Truly birthed and humble, And so this is what I think the scriptures would tell us about the nature and conflict between the spirit and the flesh. Uh, carrying on. So in verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 11, it says this. It says, The matter distresses Abraham greatly. This tension that's going on between Sarah uh, and Hagar. It says, Because it concerned his son. Verse 12. But God said to him, Do not be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So when God, when, when God finds Abraham distressed, God doesn't put the solution in front of him. He puts the promise in front of him. He reminds him of who he is, that he is to be a great name and a great nation, that he is to inherit land, and he's going to have descendants like the stars. He communicates to Abraham that, that the reckoning and the fulfillment of God's promise is upon him. And that the laughter, in fact, that he and Sarah were laughing with the tent is actually more true and more enduring than the laughter of of Hagar and Ishmael. That the laughter that is based on the promise is is always um, triumphant over and victorious over the laughter that is based in mocking. And so he's telling him, this is who you are. This is what's true. This is is the deal. That, That Isaac, the one that you have, is going to be the one through which all of the nations are going to be blessed, including Ishmael, your offspring. Notice what it says in verse 12. Through Isaac, your offspring will be reckoned. Well, what does that mean? That in verse 13, I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. And then in other words, both of these uh, offspring are going to find blessing through the covenant that God is giving him. Um, It's just that Isaac is going to be the the channel by which God directs this blessing. And so um, this is 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 an important moment for, for Abraham. Abraham is torn. Abraham doesn't have a checkered past. He has a mingled past. He has a past in which the person that is before him. That he is about to need to send away. Is not just some sin that he needs to turn from. It's his son. It is a person uh, that he has that he has weaned and has been circumcised and brought into the family in the covenant. It's the person that he has walked with and the person in Genesis 17 that he is appealing for, that Ishmael might be included in the promise and might actually become the promised son. This is the tension that Abraham lives in. And so he is challenged with this this direction. And he doesn't know what's going to happen next. It would not be unlike, you know, a a divided family today, you know, in a divorced reality... If you were to send your kids off to another household and not know where they would go, you wouldn't know what would go in and out of their life. You wouldn't know who would be supporting them. You don't know who's speaking into them. It's a, it's a vulnerable and fragile place to place your children, even if they are in your home before God, but especially if they were to have to leave the home. This is where Abraham is. There's tension and there's enmity between the two lines, and he has to send his son away. And so in verse 14, it says this, Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders, and he sent them off with the boy. She went on her way, and, he, and she wandered into the desert of Beersheba. So in verse 14, it says early next morning, Abraham sent food and a skin of water. Notice Abraham is a very rich guy. He has lots of camels. He has lots of animals. He has lots of uh, transportation and gold and things that he's uh, been blessed with according to the promise of God uh, and sometimes according to his own um, taking control of situations in Egypt. But nonetheless, he had means to send his son off uh, with more of inheritance. But instead, if we look at what he sent him off with, he sent him off as a slave. Now, this is not Abraham's idea. This is not his desire. As, I, as we've talked about just a moment ago, God, Abraham deeply desires to see his son blessed, and he relates to his son Ishmael and loves his son. But yet God is calling him to send him away. And so it is that God, that Abraham um, is not being blessed, an an absent father who is abusing his son, he is trusting the word of the Lord. He is trusting what God is saying about the son. He's trusting about the future for the son. He's trusting in all these terms about what is about to happen. And so this passage, um, I believe, speaks to us a lot, um, even in this day, even in this room. A passage like this, a passage like Ishmael, talks about our checkered past and our mingled past. But it, also, but it talks about the things that we can't, um, the, the messes that we've made in the past and the things that we have in the past that we can't fix, that we can't, um, we can't recuperate, we can't help. So Abraham is placed to the corner of this desert, the edge of his property, and he has to send uh, his son off, essentially, into the hands of the Lord based only on the promise. I will bless him too. I came to bless Isaac. Isaac was delivered to you and he was delivered to you on the day that I said that he would be delivered just as I said in the beginning of Genesis 21. But just as much as you're trusting me for Isaac, I want you to trust me for Ishmael too. For you to see the redemption of this past, you have to let it go. We care a lot about our past as human beings. Um, We spend a lot of money going to counseling to deal with our past. We care about the past because the past is where the narrative is. The past is where... We define where we are and therefore where we're headed. Uh, The past is where we lose our ability to to define the narrative about ourselves and who we are and our identity. And so the past is a very precarious thing that uh, we are putting before the Lord. And I think that Ishmael, I think that this story speaks to us today and knocks on the door of our heart to talk to us about our past in some part. Because there are certain messes that we can't clean up. And there are certain things in our past. As we carry on into our 20s and our 30s and our 40s, there is more and more people that are hurting and that, and that hurt us. And there are more and more um, regrets that we have of decisions that we wish we could go back and change. There are more failures that we have that are much like Ishmael where they intertwine our blessings and our curses in the same places. And so I think that Abraham is coming to terms and needing to come to terms with his past. And he is realizing that in order to Uh, see the future redeemed, uh, he is going to have to treat his present and his future differently than he has his past. That is, instead of taking things into his own hands, he's having to open them up and allow the Lord to fix it. The truth is we can't go back and fix our past. I don't know if you've ever gone back to clear the air or uh, maybe restore a relationship or try and find peace over a conflict that you've had in your past. There's a lot of times that it doesn't work out. There's a lot of times that their narrative is different than your narrative. There's a lot of times when they see you differently than you'd like to be seen and your story is different from their story and there's a lot of places with people that we care about. I mean, isn't it true that the people that we care about the most are oftentimes the people we hurt the most? Isn't it true the people that we care about the most oftentimes are the ones that have license and ability and authority to hurt us the most? And yet God is not calling Abraham to forget his past but to reckon with it. The only way to reckon with it is not to run or redefine it Or try and rectify it on his own or overcorrect it into the future. The only way for God, for Abraham to deal with his past is to trust it in the hands of his God. And so there he is with the most important things in his life. He's come to the edge of his property and he's had to trust God with with his son, with his first son. The one that he messed up with, the one that he wished he could make up years for, the one that he wishes he could maybe be such a dad in the last years of his life that he could make up for the first years of his life. This is what we want to do with our past, to redeem it and rectify it, to make it right. But there are many messes we can't fix. And in many ways, we can't can't fall for the lie that we can overcorrect something in the past by doing something better in the future. Because the reality is the only way that we can see redemption in the past is through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Through the redemption of Jesus Christ. And it's painful as somebody responsible. It's painful as a father. It's painful as a mother to not be able to go back in time. Oh, how we wish we could go back and do it right, but we can't. And so we must do what is best moving forward, which is to trust our past in the hands of Jesus. To trust that he is the only one that goes before us and behind us and redeems it and heals it. This is what we need. Verse 15, <clears throat> when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes Verse 16, then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch this boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. And so this is it. If Abraham follows his son with a little caravan, and they're without need, and Abraham tries to overcorrect his failures of the past, they are not in this desert, they are not in despair, they are not without water, and they don't cry out for God. If Hagar and Ishmael don't cry out for God, if he's not under the bush crying out for God, then God doesn't hear him. And God hears all the cries. Hagar and Ishmael are outsiders. God is not just listening to outsiders. He is hearing every cry that has ever cried by any human being on this earth. God hears the cries of all people in all circumstances and situations. And if Abraham tries to overcorrect his failure by not trusting God and asking God what he should be doing, then he's out there with the caravan, but he's not. And because he's not, they're under the bush. They cry out for him and God hears them. And God hears them and applies mercy to their life. This is what it says. God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand. I will make him a great nation. This is what Abraham doesn't see. Abraham doesn't see the hand of God beyond what, God, what Abraham can control. And so God has gone out and he has he has met the boy he has met Hagar and Ishmael to preserve their line. And this is this is we need to catch this and we're going to Close up here in just a moment on the conclusion of what happens with Hagar and Ishmael. But keep our eye on verse 17. God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? In the next chapter, the next time that you guys, actually two Sundays out when you guys gather here, if you're here with us, we're going to continue on in Genesis 22 where, where um, Isaac has to, or Abraham has to take Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. And the same exact phrase is used. It says in the, in the last moment, it says the angel of God calls out, not in this case to Hagar, but to Abraham. So this is the thing. Whether it's Ishmael or Isaac, the same thing uh, is, is happening within the, the purpose of God. God is using what is most important to Abraham to develop faith in him, to trust him in everything to trust him for his past, to trust him for his future, to trust him for his um, illegitimate son and to trust him for his promised child, to trust him for his bad things and trust him for his good things. This is what God is doing around him in a a, a, uh, 360 circumference around Abraham's life is calling Abraham to trust him with everything that he has. And this is what he's doing with us. This is why I think the past matters because the the, the, the past imposes on the future. And what we do with our bad stuff also imposes what we will do with our good stuff. What he will do with Ishmael predicates what he's about to do with Isaac. If he doesn't learn how to trust God for the Ishmael, he doesn't learn how to trust God for the Isaac. It's both and. And parents, right, it's easier almost to to trust God with with the bad kid. Like the bad kid, you know, like I don't have any control, so I got to let them do what they're going to do. And everybody knows that their hair is on fire and everybody knows there's nothing I can do. But what about the good kid? What about the kid that everything is going right? And, and the temptation is not, you know, that I can't have control over. The temptation is that I do, or the illusion is that I do have control about the good things and the bad things. There are certain people that say, Lord, you can have my past. I don't want anything about my past. Lord, I give it to you. And then the Lord will t- touch me on the shoulder and say, like, what about your future? Will you give me your future too? You see what's happening. It's, it is about Ishmael. It is about Isaac. But, it's, but, the, but the narrative is pointed at Abraham. It's pointed at, are you going to trust me with the things that matter most? Are you going to trust me with the good and the bad, the sweet and the sour? Are you going to trust me with the entire mingled mess of your life? And when I ask you, and when it doesn't make sense, and when you want to clean up the mess, and when you want to rectify, and you want to justify, and you want to vindicate yourself, will you trust me, then Abraham? And this is the kind of of holy priest that he is making Abraham to be. So here it is. Verse 19, then God opens the eyes of Hagar and and Ishmael, and they see a well of water. A well is going to be an important theme that we're going to look at next week as well, but a well is something that's deep, it's promissory, it means the Holy Spirit, and it's something that means to dwell in the land. He's not giving up on Ishmael. He's still working on Ishmael. He's still working on Hagar, and he's still honoring his promise before Hagar and Abraham that he's going to include, he's going to include the Ishmaels of the world into the promise, somehow, Somehow, in his timing, God is going to establish this mill and bless him. Because God is the one who blesses. God is the one who wants to bless his broken world. So she went out and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Verse 20, God was with the boy as he grew up and he lived in the desert and became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother gave him a wife. Wife and water. I guess that's all you need, right? Wife and water. No, in the Old Testament, the water is the symbol of establishment in the land. And the wife is the symbol of establishment and blessing. This is the major covenant blessing, the ability to have descendants and multitudes. And he has promised them that, that, that Ishmael is going to be a great nation. What will become of Ishmael? What will become of this one who's established in this desert, at the bottom southern boundary, right before Egypt, of, um, of the promised land of, of, of God's uh, land? Look follow me in, in uh, I think it's um, Isaiah chapter 19. Um, verse twenty three, starting in twenty three. This is the future and the fate for Ishmael. On that day, says the Lord, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And this prophecy is still true and still coming true, even as we speak. God is not done with the outcast. He hears the cries of every person that ever cries out to him. He is merciful to anyone that would turn to him, and this has been his heart and promise from the very beginning. In Isaiah chapter nineteen twenty three. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria, and the Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. This is the picture. It's not that he's going to just bless Isaac instead of Ishmael. He's going to bless Ishmael through Isaac. Through his perfect timing, there will come a seed, a seed that will permanently stomp out, one born of the Spirit, not of the flesh, to stomp out forever the seed of the serpent. And it's going to bring a salvation to anyone that would come any Jew, any Gentile that would come, any, any Chinese person or Italian or, or Irish person or Polish person that would turn, all the Ishmaels of this world will be blessed through the only Isaac, the only true Isaac, which is Jesus. The only perfect Isaac, which is Jesus, who's going to lay down his life and not be spared the, ways that they, the way that Isaac was. But he is going to lay down his life fully that the nations might come to him in his timing. He is not just blessing Isaac, he is blessing Ishmael too, and you, and me. He has not left us alone in the desert. He is establishing us. Verse 25, the Lord Almighty blessed them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork. The Muslims and the Hindus and the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the atheists and the agnostics. He has come to bring a plan of salvation to all that might follow him, to all that might call on him. Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. God is not done working on Ishmael yet, and he's not done working on you or me, So Ishmael, uh, the story of Ishmael brings up, as we've sort of touched on today, um, it brings up the reflections of our past. And it brings up the reflection of our life. And um, there is certainly maybe some wise Christian circles uh, and wise Christian thought. You know, in Philippians it says, Paul says, this bold statement, you know, I, I move forward, leaving what is behind me as the past forgetting the the past and I strain forward ahead of me. And actually you know that passage it has more to do with kind of like station in life and the status it's like I'm leaving behind my home and my entitlement and my rights and my privileges as a roman or as an american less so about my story because if you read the pages of any of paul's writings he's continually bringing up the past of his story if only to show the redemptive work of god into his future but make no mistake if we don't deal with our past it does follow us into the future. And God is not just interested in our future, but he's also interested in our past. And so I think that the story of Ishmael, it shows us what it looks like to come to the edge of our property and realize there, are, there ultimately is nothing we can do to redeem our past other than trust it to the hands of Jesus Christ. And so there are people that, man, you wish you could write down an argument and a five-point thesis as to why you're right and they're wrong. And you know you'd take them out to coffee and you'd be as humble as you possibly could but 99% of the time, they're not listening to a word that you have to say because the past is something that needs a miracle. It needs redemption. And there are people that, have hurt, that, that, that you have hurt and you just wish so bad. You could go back and take it back. You could take back those words. You could take back what you said. You could take back what you did. And you could come to the edge of that and, and we all know that, um, man, that bones can be repaired and cars can be repaired, but a lot of times that once trust is lost, it's very difficult to get it back if, if it's not impossible. And so the only hope we have with our past that we might see our, our souls saved, right? And to see our future redeemed into the future is to trust our past at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so I love counseling, but let's make sure in our counseling that we're first counseled by the Holy Spirit. And then when we sit with our counselor, may they lead us to the feet of Jesus. Because the purpose of counseling, the purpose of looking back, is not to go and prove something and vindicate something, is not to justify something or go get something from the past that you don't already have in Jesus Christ. We can move forward into this future and into our present moment because of the promise. We are not built on the foundation of the past. We are built on his history, not ours. So we come into that chair, and if we we are to deal with our past in the name of handing it over to Jesus at the edge of our tent, we know where our boundary stops and where his begins. And the safest place we can put our past is in his hands. We are here to treat people the way that we are treated by Jesus. And any counseling sessions that's not driving me towards becoming a wholehearted person, a holy priest that can bless others the way that I've been blessed, I need to go get a new counselor. Because the purpose of my counseling, the purpose of my reckoning with the past is that it might be reckoned with the son of Isaac, with Jesus, the only son, that I would be treated the way that Jesus would treat and I would treat others the way that he treated me that the forgiveness would flow the way that I am forgiven. If we go to counseling, obviously much of that has to do with forgiveness, but we're not forgiving based on our feelings, based on what they've done to us, based on if they said that they're sorry or not. We are forgiving because, because he has forgiven us and to the measure he's forgiven us and to the breadth and the width and, the, and the, 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 um, the extent to which he's forgiven us. And by the way, and by the way, maybe the first person that we need to forgive in Jesus Christ is ourself. You remember what Jesus says? To the woman, she's caught in the act of adultery and she's surrounded by accusers. They're all gonna throw rocks at her. It's a famous passage. And Jesus looks out to that crowd and says, those that are gathered here, which one of you guys has, has, has been without sin? And stories told. It's so important that we grab hold of this is that they, they drop their stones and Jesus, the only one that matters, the only true judge, looks at him and says, so then, go and sin no more. I don't. I, I. don't have any. I don't hold anything against you. I can go and sin no more. And so it is like, our, um, our judicial system is in the hands of Jesus, and the way that we reckon our forgiveness. Um, sometimes we need to forgive our, ourselves before other people will forgive us. You know, and so we need to look to Jesus, and we need to trust Jesus to go to Jesus and treat others the way that He's treated us. Forgive others the way that he's forgiven us and forgive ourselves the way that we trust him to forgive us. His, his, his forgiveness is, um, is, 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 uh, is, is endless, it's infinite. Um, it is to the, to the measure and degree that God has satisfied his justice on the cross. And so I wanna close uh, this morning with just um, a few questions, maybe some questions to uh, talk on the ride home with, talk in your city group with uh, this week or next. Um, I'll invite the band to come forward but I believe that the story of Ishmael is a story about our past. I think it's a story about God's desire and his power and his ability to redeem uh, and redefine our past. I believe that um, the story of Ishmael is a story about what we did without God, because that's what flesh is. Anytime that uh, we act apart from God and on our own will and our own independence, it's not just about doing the right thing or the wrong thing or the good thing or the bad thing. It is about doing the thing with God and without God. And any time that we have walked out on our own um, desires and our own definition of, of right and wrong without God's, um, without, well, God's prompting and, and, and guidance, yeah, there, there's, there is, um, there's ministry to be done. So I want to invite you guys to stand. And I just want to ask you guys three questions that you might consider uh, by yourself or with somebody that you love. Um, we are not in charge of redefining or rectifying the past but we can put our past at the feet of Jesus at the cross. And there's much power and much healing that can happen at that place. And so I wonder how these questions hit you this morning. How will you trust God to redeem your past through Jesus? This is it. He is not just forgiving uh, and and redefining our future. He is forgiving our past. He is redeeming our past. And so there's a great opportunity that we have um, in Jesus at the cross to see him redeem our past through Jesus. We trust him don't take control we don't take matters into our own hands and we don't try and fix the future the way that we compromise the past and so just a couple of questions is there anything I need to own number two is there anything I need to forgive is there anything I need to do or say is there anything I need to own is there anything I need to forgive is there anything I need to do or say trust is not passive Abraham's faith looked like something he had to take a step I know somebody right now uh, even um, heard a testimony this week of somebody that is fighting for their marriage. And for all intents and purposes, it looked like it was not headed towards redemption. But it was an individual, this young man, decided to own what he could own. He brought his obedience to the edge of his tent, to Beersheba, and allowed God to do what only God could do. And he didn't blame his wife. He didn't project onto his wife. He didn't put demands on his wife. He simply put before the Lord his need. He put before the Lord his past. And I want you to consider, Holy Spirit, how might you call me to see my past redeemed? There would be great healing, generational blessing that would be placed place for cursing and something that is made new in your hands today, Lord Jesus. And so as we close this time in worship, I thank you that we are gathered in your name. I thank you that the spirit, as Timothy said earlier, is just hovered over this place to do a holy, mighty work. And God, we believe and know that um, who the son sets free is free indeed. And if we are born of the spirit, we are not born of the flesh. And so God, every move we make into the future and every um, consideration and thought that we would take captive that comes from our past, Lord, that we would put it at your feet. That we treat others as we've been treated and forgive others as we've forg- been forgiven. And God, in this moment as we close, if there's any person here that needs to bring something from their past to you, I pray that you'd give them great hope and courage knowing that what you've done before, you're gonna do again. And there's no no breath height with um, distance that can separate us from the love of God. And we thank you, God, that you hear every cry of our heart. We call out to you now, trusting that you always answer. In Jesus' name.